It is May 26th, 1897, London, England. The Archibald Constable and Company publishes a new novel, costing six shillings, that is bound in yellow cloth. The book's title sprawls across the cover in bold red letters. Dracula. The novel does not sink its teeth into the general populace. Only 3,000 copies are printed to mixed critical reviews. Its author, Bram Stoker, continues his day job as acting manager of the Lyceum Theater, writing novels on the side. Stoker was born today, November 8th, 175 years ago, in Dublin, Ireland. When he dies 64 years later, few people remember Dracula. His obituary doesn't even mention it. Two years ago, I picked up a copy of Dracula, a paperback with the same yellow and red cover. But what I found inside that book was so much stranger than what we all remember. So I talked to some friends, and before we knew it, we'd read dozens of white papers, biographies, and explainers. Dracula's story included cutting-edge technology for its time, critiqued English culture from the eyes of an Irish writer, and was laced with the lifelong traumas that author Bram Stoker had survived. So how does Count Dracula emerge from that shabby-looking forgotten book to become one of the most iconic fictional characters of all time? Well, if you're looking for the answer, you've come to the right place. This is Novel Context, Season 1, Dracula. Welcome to Novel Context, where we unpack influential books to understand the story the author was really telling. This season, we'll be exploring who Bram Stoker was, his inspirations for Dracula and the origins of vampires, and the surprising ways this book still haunts us 125 years after being published. I'm your host, David, and this episode we'll be exploring the first four chapters of Dracula. Then we'll check in with our research team to journey through the history of spooky castles, explore Dracula's often ignored powers over dreams and reality, and unmask who Count Dracula was really based on. Okay, let's dive into what happens. The novel Dracula's opening chapters are told by the diary of Jonathan Harker, an English lawyer who has been summoned to Transylvania. The book is written as an epistolary, which means it's told exclusively through diary entries, letters in the mail, newspaper clippings, and ship logs of various characters. Over the course of the story, we'll read the personal, subjective writing of almost a dozen people. But it all starts with Jonathan Harker's journal, and it'd be an understatement to say that things do not go well for dear Jonathan. His first entry starts on May 3rd, 1893. The young solicitor, a fancy word for a sort of property lawyer, is keeping a record of his business travels by making shorthand journal entries to chronicle his adventure for his fiancée, Mina Murray. Jonathan has been dispatched from his hometown of Exeter, England, to the distant Transylvania, to assist a nobleman in the purchase of some real estate in Greater London. 
While enjoying the sights and sounds and food along his travels, Jonathan does remark in his journal that he is eager to wrap up his work and return home to marry his beloved. Throughout his journey, Jonathan is plagued with poor sleep, which will be a recurring theme for so many characters throughout the novel. The young solicitor initially assumes these restless nights are related to the exotic foods the Englishman is consuming. If only that were the case. Jonathan Harker experiences some odd sights and sounds on his travels to the land of Transylvania, which is held hostage by the Carpathian Mountains that surround it. There are ghostly blue fires in mountain passes, crucifix-gifting townsfolk, carriage-chasing wolves, fanged kalesh drivers. But one thing is clear. The locals know of the Count's reputation, and they are scared for Jonathan's life. When Jonathan Harker finally arrives at Castle Dracula, he is greeted warmly by the Count. Welcome to my house, the Count tells him. Enter freely and of your own free will. Our first introduction to the horror icon is a simple and direct one. Jonathan describes him as a tall old man, clean shaven, save for a long white mustache, and clad in black from head to foot. This fantastic mustache that the Count sports is often omitted from film adaptations of the novel and should be considered the greatest sin in cinema history. Jonathan's first days with the Count are surprisingly hospitable. There are warm fires and meticulously prepared meals. While the Count does not dine with Jonathan, he does spend time getting to know the young solicitor. Over the next several days, we discover that the Count is looking into purchasing an estate in London and has been researching England for his trip, including learning the language. The Count even asked Jonathan to help him remove his accent so that the Count can better blend in amongst the English. But on his official business, Jonathan is helping prepare for the paperwork for the Count's new digs, a property called Carfax. Jonathan details the gloomy Carfax property for the Count, who says, I love the shade and the shadow. Of course he does. While the Count is courteous with Jonathan in most of their discussions, strange happenings begin to terrify the young solicitor. There is an incident where Jonathan cuts himself shaving, and the Count lunges for him before being repelled by Jonathan's crucifix. Another day, Jonathan catches the Count scaling the sides of the castle walls, his arms spread out like a great bat. When his trip is extended by the Count, Jonathan is forced to write letters for the future to be mailed by the Count. At first, Jonathan tries to rationalize these events, blame them on being tired or seeing things or not understanding Transylvanian culture. Jonathan likens himself like a rat in a trap, but believes it in his best interest to not let the Count know of his fears. In an attempt to understand just how trapped he is, Jonathan secretly explores the castle and finds doors, doors everywhere, and all locked and bolted. In one of his journeys while the Count is gone, Jonathan is able to sneak into a section of the castle he hasn't seen before, and it's in this dark, unkept part of the castle that we experience the first truly terrifying scene of the novel. Jonathan sees three strange women emerge, seemingly from moonlight, and cast no shadows on the stone beneath their feet. Jonathan describes two of them, having high beak-like noses and dark, piercing red eyes, and the third 
being as fair as can be, with wavy golden hair and sapphire eyes. He finds the women both thrilling and repulsive. One of them seduces him and then fastens her lips on his throat, pressing two sharp teeth against his skin. But the Count bursts into the room and ends the wild scene. He grabs the neck of the fair woman and hurls her across the room. Dracula assures his lusty roommates that when he is done with Jonathan, they can have their way with his house guest. In the meantime, the Count feeds them a baby as an appetizer. He tosses the women a small, writhing, crying sack, and they consume the child. If Jonathan needed more of a reason to think that his final days were upon him, these awful women are somewhere in this castle, just waiting to take collection of their due. Soon, Jonathan sees a chance to send word home. A band of locals, called Zegeni, have begun to camp out in the courtyard of Castle Dracula. Jonathan believes the Zegeni to be gypsies and notes that they live outside the law here in Transylvania and attach themselves to a great noble and call themselves by his name. That's not quite right historically, however. Bram Stoker used lots of shitty old stereotypes of Romani people and essentially any cultures in Eastern Europe, like many of his English contemporaries. Racist plot device aside, Jonathan is able to sneak letters to the Zegeni, written in code, but they immediately turn these over to the Count. Count Dracula calls these letters vile and an outrage upon friendship and hospitality. The Count takes all of Jonathan's letter-writing materials and even his extra set of clothes. The Count even runs around the local town in the stuffy British attire and makes folks think that Jonathan is still alive. He may not be for long. Jonathan continues to watch the courtyard, his only connection to the world outside. Slovaks bring coffins, which the Zezgeni fill with dirt. The baby that Count Dracula and the weird sisters used as an appetizer, its mother arrives at the gates and pleads with Dracula to return her child. The Count's response is brutal. He calls out from the castle's tower in a harsh, metallic whisper, and wolves far and wide answer his call. They pour into the courtyard, and the woman does not cry out as she meets her end. The Count comes to Jonathan and tells him that they must part tomorrow, that after the Zagani and the Slovaks leave, there will be a carriage to take Jonathan to the Borgo Pass. Jonathan calls bullshit and demands to leave now. The Count, with apparent sweet courtesy in his eyes, he says that not an hour shall Jonathan wait against his will. The Count offers Jonathan his leave, but the wolves outside assault the door, and a terrified Jonathan refuses to exit. Count Dracula had, quote, a red light of triumph in his eyes, and a smile that Judas and Hell might be proud of. The 30th of June. These may be the last words I ever write in this diary. Jonathan is determined that if death comes, it will find him ready. As morning approaches, he checks the front door, but it is locked once again. Our doomed solicitor has a wild desire to obtain the key at any risk, and out the east window he goes, 
scaling the castle walls. He descends an old staircase and makes his way to a chapel. Here he finds a coffin, and what's inside fills his very soul with horror. There lies Count Dracula, with his youth half-restored. His white hair and mustache have become dark gray, and he is plump and red, fresh blood trickling from his lips. Jonathan searches the Count's body for the key to his escape, but also is driven mad by the Count's mocking smile and plan. Jonathan Harker decides to rid the world of such a monster. He grabs a nearby shovel and goes for the killing blow. But just as he connects, the Count turns to face him. Jonathan's shovel murder is thwarted by the Count's look, glancing from the face and leaving only a deep gash above the forehead. Jonathan flees after his last glimpse of the Count's eerie grin. Later in his room, Jonathan hears the Zajeni finish their work and load the dirt-filled coffins onto wagons. One of these coffins likely contains the Count himself. Once the Count's henchmen are in the distance, Jonathan decides to escape the weird sisters, who he knows will come for him. Jonathan chooses the only exit he can imagine, scaling the walls of the castle like he saw the Count do before. Even if he dies descending the side of the castle to freedom, he will at least die as a free man. Jonathan wishes goodbye to his fiancée, Mina, and ends his diary entries. Jonathan Harker spends three of the first four chapters of the novel as a guest-slash-prisoner of Castle Dracula. The castle is now so ingrained in our minds as the gothic castle that we take for granted all of the influences from which Bram Stoker borrowed. Let's join Nancy as she pushes back the creaky doors and ascends the spiral staircase of spooky castles. When Jonathan Harker finally comes upon Castle Dracula, he describes it as a vast ruined castle from whose tall black windows came no ray of light and whose broken battlements showed a jagged line across the moonlit sky. Typically, castles convey a sense of wealth, expanse, and grandeur. However, Bram Stoker describes a structure whose age, darkness, and deterioration sets the mood that there may be elements hidden from our protagonist, Jonathan Harker, and the reader. During Jonathan's stay, the castle gradually shrinks in on him, and he starts to feel lost and locked away inside its maze-like hallways. But Stoker was following a popular trend in gothic fiction where haunted castles are a major theme, because even though they are impressive structures, they are also depicted as decaying relics. Several other novels also use the haunted castle imagery in their plots prior to Stoker's Transylvanian adventure. One such novel is The Castle of Otranto. It was written by Horace Walpole in 1764 and is considered to be the quintessential gothic novel that influenced a number of novels in the genre to come after it. Walpole was such a fan of the gothic style that he remodeled his home in the gothic architecture design. Stone edifices, flying buttresses, and pointed spires. However, in Otranto, the descriptions of the exterior and interior are limited in order to disorient the characters and confuse the readers. What the novel lacks in description, though, it more than makes up for in its tone, isolation, and acts of God. 
or more appropriately, Curses and Ghosts. In the novel, our protagonist is Manfred, the Prince of Otranto. The real Otranto is in Italy, but Walpole didn't know any of the castles in the real Otranto until many years after the writing of the novel. He just liked the sound of it. Stoker continued the trend by looking up foreign maps and picking a location to serve as the setting. Stoker even mentioned Otranto in his novel, The Lady of the Shroud, where a character can inherit a creepy castle if he can stay there for a year without losing his shit. So, our prince of the fictional Otranto, Manfred, is consumed by an ancient prophecy on the family, that the castle and lordship of Otranto should pass from the present family whenever the real owner should be grown too large to inhabit it. They're not talking about Manfred giving up carbs. The novel mentions that it was difficult to make any sense of this prophecy, but Manfred's greedy actions self-fulfills the curse when he becomes obsessed with it and plots ways that he can avoid the outcome. The reason for Manfred's obsession over the ancient prophecy stems from the opening scene of the novel where the head of the ancient statue falls from the castle and crushes his son to death. With Otranto now airless, Prince Manfred decides that the best course of action is to divorce his current wife and marry his dead son's fiance. This is all in vain since his son's widow refuses the marriage, causing Manfred to become unhinged, taking desperate actions to gain an heir and keep control over Otranto a real level-headed guy that just screams great father material. His deeds set the basis for the hauntings that soon take place, including a painting of a previous lord coming to life and sightings of several ghastly appendages that appear out of thin air. Throughout the castle of Otranto, we see several elements of Gothic literature that we visit during Manfred's escapades following the death of his son, secret passages, hidden caves, and an underground church. This should all seem very familiar to us. In Castle Dracula, we certainly deal with hidden caves, and later, we'll see that Dracula's London estate Carfax has a chapel on the property, something we wouldn't expect in spooky settings, but here we are. In 1794, about 100 years before Dracula, Anne Radcliffe's The Mysteries of Odolfo was published. A lot of the elements we see in Dracula's castle are included in Udolfo, a vast and poorly lit labyrinth of odd branching hallways, a sprawling tower built into a steep mountain range, a cloaked ominous figure walking the castle's ramparts at night, and secrets hidden within the walls of the castle. In this story, Udolpho's protagonist, Emily St. Aubert, is much like Jonathan Harker. After her father dies, Emily finds herself imprisoned in the castle by her aunt's new husband, who tries to marry her off, even though she is in love with another man. While living in the castle, she explores the grounds and finds locked rooms throughout the winding hallways. The curiosity that Emily and Jonathan exhibit draws them to explore their surroundings and ultimately turn that curiosity on its head. It's an interesting switch that happens where our sympathetic leads in both Udolpho and Dracula spend time trying to go deeper into the castles. In Emily's case, we see her gain entry into a previously locked room where she finds an object hidden under a black veil that is so horrifying she can't even describe it to the reader. In Dracula, Jonathan and Harker can relate well to these feelings because as he wanders the castle in order to find out more information about the Count, he comes across countless locked doors in his way. And much like Emily's labyrinth adventures and ghoulish discoveries, Jonathan will eventually gain access into a locked room and find that he and Dracula are in fact not the only occupants of the castle. 
You can certainly see where Stoker got his literary inspiration for the castle presented in Dracula. So was there any real-life inspiration, or did Stoker, like Walpole before him, just make it up? There are three competing castles that vie for the location that inspired Bram Stoker for his description of the Count's home. These three castles are all located in Romania and benefit greatly from their association with the Count. Let's start with Bran Castle. Bran Castle is the only castle in all of Transylvania that actually fits Bram Stoker's description of Castle Dracula. It's believed that Stoker used the illustration of Bran Castle from Charles Boner's book, Transylvania, Its Product and Its People, to describe Dracula's castle. However, we have no specific reference to this theory in any of Stoker's notes for Dracula. Although Stoker wasn't inspired by a particular historical figure when creating Dracula, Prince Vlad Tepish of Wallachia is often associated with the novel and has historical ties to Bran Castle. Passage to Wallachia went through Bran and makes Bran an incredibly important stop in Wallachian trade. In fact, if you visit Bran Castle today, you can still see the original custom houses where taxes were collected from the merchants entering into Transylvania. During the time that Vlad Tepish occupied Bran Castle, he retaliated against the nearby German merchants because they failed to follow his rules on trading in his Wallachian markets, and in response, he led several campaigns against them to show his dominance within the region. In 1462, a Hungarian king met with Vlad Tepish to work out an agreement in their common fight against the invading Ottomans. But the Hungarian king came into possession of a letter from Vlad Tepish betraying the king and offering allegiance to the Ottomans. In response, the Hungarian king captured Vlad and imprisoned him in Bran Castle for two months. From here, Vlad was moved to the Visegrad Fortress in Hungary, the king's summer home. You know what they say, keep your enemies closer and take them with you on vacation. The second castle on our list is Poneri Castle, and it can at least brag that this was once the home of Vlad the Impaler. One can only imagine the very gruesome scenes that took place within its walls just by being so closely associated with him. Poneri also sits on top of a high steep rock, adding more to the theory that this is the castle that inspired Stoker for the setting of Dracula's home in the novel. Up until the 15th century, it sat vacant and in ruins until Vlad moved in and enslaved the nobility of the Danubian principalities of Wallachia, forcing them to repair and fortify the castle for him. That's one hell of a housewarming gift. Upon Vlad's death in 1476, Poneri Castle was used for many more years afterwards, but it wasn't until the 17th century that the abandoned castle was left in ruins and sustained further damage due to earthquakes in 1940 and 1977. Throughout its history, Poneri Castle hosted many guests who would tell stories of icy temperatures in the castle even during the summer months. The smell of rotten flowers wafting through the halls, experiencing strange and terrifying nightmares, and even an account of being bitten by an invisible phantom. That last one may have just been someone trying to explain a mysterious hickey that they had received. Lastly, let's talk about Corvin Castle. The first thing to note about Corvin Castle is that the current edifice is not what was actually built in the 1400s. After years of neglect and a devastating fire, what we see today as Corvin Castle is a great Gothic castle nostalgically interpreted by modern architects. The original Corvin Castle was built in a Renaissance style with towers, ramparts, a multitude of windows, and balconies with stone carvings. 
some of the towers on site were used as prisons, while the other towers were used defensively and were able to house large weapons. The last bit of construction that took place on the original Corvin Castle was completed in the 17th century when additions were made to build the new palace facing the town of Hunedora, Romania. So why is Corvin Castle even in the running as the inspiration for Castle Dracula? It starts when folk Hunedori was given the land in 1409 by the king of Hungary and Croatia and then passed down to his son, Jean Hunedori. When John Hinodori was Hungary's military leader, he held Vlad the Impaler as prisoner at Corvin Castle. In the end, despite John being responsible for the execution of Vlad the Impaler's father and that little bit of time as his prisoner, the two managed to create an alliance together when John supported Vlad in seizing the Wallachian throne. I guess it was the least John could do. This bit of legend from Vlad the Impaler as a prisoner of Corvin Castle is the only connection the castle has to being Stoker's inspiration for Castle Dracula. But Stoker never mentions knowing about Vlad's alliance with John or knowing that Vlad was imprisoned at Corvin Castle. In Bram Stoker's own handwritten notes, he points to an empty cliff in the Kalamani Mountains as the inspired location for the Count's castle. An empty cliff. So no actual castle. But kudos to the marketing departments for Bran, Poneri, and Corvin castles for upping their spooky factors. You can visit each of these and walk away with various Dracula-based trinkets, including actual soil if you want to try and invade London yourself. While we're looking at Bram's location inspirations, it's important to note that Stoker never actually set foot in Transylvania. This didn't stop him from using the epic mountains, gloomy forests, and the gothic trope of spooky castles to help build his prison around Jonathan Harker. Throughout the first few chapters of the novel, Jonathan Harker has difficulty telling dream from reality. He mentions waking up when he didn't know he was asleep, questions if events are really occurring, seemingly slips into time loops, and even awakens in rooms that he never fell asleep in. This line between reality and the supernatural sleep world is so very thin. Let's turn to Gene to guide us through. According to his journal entries, Jonathan Harker sleeps at least 56 nights in Castle Dracula. He is the Count's prisoner and is mainly confined to his bedroom and study. Jonathan is allowed only to eat, read, and await the Count for their ritual of night-long conversation. But Jonathan also dreams. In his diary, Jonathan writes of having strange dreams, especially after his interactions with the Count. And as the sleepless nights and days at the castle bleed together, he struggles to separate dreams from reality. Even before his arrival at the castle, Jonathan succumbs to Dracula's dreamlike spell in his travels throughout the Carpathians. On the Kalesh ride through the Borgo Pass, the scene around him appears to endlessly repeat itself. He sees the same trees, the same blue flames, the same circling wolves. Jonathan wonders if he has fallen asleep into some nightmare. The journey to the castle is only the first of many events where Jonathan loses a sense of reality as he enters this stranger's strange land. One explanation central to the troubles at Castle Dracula is the concept of sacred and profane spaces, 
the holy and the unholy. The word profanity comes from the Latin word profanus, meaning before or outside the temple. So not necessarily bad words, but just the words that you couldn't use in church. Literary scholar Beth McDonald argues that the concept of an unholy or profane space applies directly to Castle Dracula, where causality, physics, and the rules of life and death seemingly do not exist. Jonathan lives in the affluent suburbs of London and attended a fancy-pants law school just minutes from the Strand. He was protected and mentored by Mr. Hawkins, a well-established lawyer in Exeter, well, excuse me. Jonathan's whole life is at odds with his new adventure as a European in the misunderstood East. The closer he gets to Castle Dracula, the more his reality begins to bend. Suddenly, the locals do not understand his language. The mountains turn gray, and he is chased by wolves, blue flames, and paprika. Smoked paprika. Jonathan Harker's amnestic, dreamlike experiences at Castle Dracula intensify when he wanders off from his chamber and into the unknown halls of the castle. Despite the Count's warning, Jonathan finds himself in a dusty corner of the castle and, like any of us would, decides to take a nap. Noticeably missing is the crucifix the old woman had offered him for protection. He had hung this crucifix over the head of his bed to ward off his dreams, a nod to those sacred and profane spaces as he literally places God above his head. Just as he begins to fall asleep, he sees the three weird sisters appear in the moonlight before him. They are uncanny, casting no shadows, leaving no footprints on the dusty floorboards. Their face is strangely familiar, as if he knew them from his dreams. As the weird sisters surround him, he describes being both aroused and repulsed, but unable to move, as if locked in place. Paralyzed, he cannot resist them. He cannot escape them. He can only watch in horror. At the time of the novel's writing, Sleep paralysis was often associated with demonic visitation. Henry Fuseli's 1781 painting, The Nightmare, famously depicts a similar event. An innocent woman in the thralls of sleep, pinned down by a gremlin-like creature sitting on her chest. This painting was an inspiration for many within the Gothic world, including Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and Edgar Allan Poe's The Fall of the House of Usher. Fuseli himself said, one of the most unexplored regions of art are dreams. Even the likes of Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung would both rely on Fuseli's work in their psychological theories and publications. Not bad for a guy named after Pasta. The dreams that Jonathan Harker describes, these slippery lapses in his reality, are often unexplored in analysis or adaptations of the story. But... From what Jonathan's account shows us, Dracula and his weird sisters may possess powers far scarier than their fangs. Just as the three women appeared from nothing to set themselves upon him, Dracula appears in an instant, like a ghost, seemingly saving Jonathan from their spell by bartering a baby in a bag. Upon leaving, Dracula announces, 
Now I must awaken him, for there is work to be done. Could Dracula believe that Jonathan has slept through all of this? Or do Dracula's words signal that he and his brides have mastery over the plains, the ability to cross the waking world to that of dreams through moonlight? Jonathan often tries to explain away the disconcerting or impossible memories as dreams or nightmares. What exactly is happening to him is never fully known. He may be experiencing memory gaps and dissociation to cope with the supernatural horrors around him. But there are other signs, whether painted by the author intentionally or not, that reveal the castle's damaged and warped sense of place and history. Castle Dracula does that to people. As Dracula tells Jonathan, it is old and has many memories. This idea of memories impacting a physical location was a concept that was well analyzed and heavily debated during the Victorian period. As author Christos Angeles noted, Jonathan isn't only experiencing the loss of his own memory and sense of reality, but is having his perceptions altered by the castle's traumatic and violent history, which may be leaving a material residue behind. Memories that are channeled into Jonathan through the very rooms in the castle he dwells. The Count tells Jonathan that a newly built house would kill him. Houses must experience history to be habitable for him. Whether Dracula means this metaphorically or metaphysically, it begs the question, then what is the castle doing to Jonathan? The concept of having one's mind affected by outside forces in mysterious ways was not something uncommon to England in the late 1800s. While new technology and science were being embraced and lauded by Victorian England, there was also, according to Dracula scholar Carol A. Senf, a desire to look to the past with a strong sense of nostalgia. In the past, there seemed to be a clear synthesis of moral, religious, artistic, political, and social thought. A sort of make Transylvania great again moment. This tense friction between science and faith led some Victorians to seek out the mysticism of the occult and molds the foundation for the otherworldly experiences Bram Stoker describes in his novel. One of the most impactful groups to emerge during this time was the Society for Psychical Research. Yes, I said psychical. The group was formed in London in 1882 to scientifically investigate paranormal phenomena. They were essentially the original Ghostbusters. The initial membership of the group included England's leading scientists, philosophers, scholars, authors, politicians, and, as of 2022, our producer. But don't mistake the society with early spiritualism acts. There were no seances or other popular parlor acts from the time included in the society's bag of tricks. Instead, they focused on using scientific methods to unlock the mysteries of the world around them. One of their more interesting experiments occurred in 1884, when they began a trial to test clairvoyance. While Claire was unavailable for a comment, our research indicates that they hypnotized their subjects and asked the subject to guess the face of a hidden playing card. You may remember a similar experiment from the movie Ghostbusters, where Bill Murray uses Zenner cards and a touch of electroshock therapy 
to test for clairvoyance, and to try and score. The initial tests by the Society of Psychical Research found strong data that hypnotism was indeed helping the subjects predict the cards, but after 23,000 trials, yes, 23,000, the correlations all but vanished. Out of curiosity, our team here at Novel Context attempted this same experiment. I won 50 bucks at Blackjack at the Seminole Casino, but now I make bird noises whenever anyone says the word avocado. The Society's work was not all lost, though. Frederick W.H. Myers collected much of the group's work in his book, Phantasm of the Living. It was incredibly divisive at the time of publication, with many scientists and clinicians arguing over the format and methods of the studies presented. Now what was contained in those pages that was so contentious? Over 700 documented ghostly apparitions. On the opposite spectrum of the Society for Psychical Research was a group called the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, who left science behind and fully leaned into the occult. Their group's beliefs were based on the cipher manuscripts, encoded letters written a hundred years earlier by a German order. These documents, once decoded, showed detailed rituals and spiritual practices that could help one connect with the supernatural world. These documents and the German order they originated from were likely forgeries, but the Golden Dawn's Masonic-like temples spread quickly throughout Europe regardless. A co-ed organization that allowed both men and women to join, a rare thing in Victorian England, Golden Dawn members honed their skills in astrology, geomancy, and tarot reading. While you may not have heard of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, you probably know its most famous member, Alistair Crowley. It's important to note that Bram Stoker's connection to these two groups has often been exaggerated in writing over the years, often for dramatic purposes. But while Golden Dawn historian R.A. Gilbert has said that Stoker was not a member of this group, he was an outside observer with a number of close friends who were members. We also know Stoker was connected to the Society of Psychical Research as an acquaintance of the Society's co-founder and Phantasm of the Living's author, Frederick Myers. Stoker would go on to name-drop the Society in his novel, The Lady of the Shroud, and in an early list of characters in Dracula, Stoker included a character who worked as a psychical research agent. We'll cover this more when we dive deeper into Van Helsing, but this character was ultimately combined with others and didn't make the final cut. Knowing this, Stoker was no stranger to the world of the mystical. Even growing up, we can look back on Stoker's formative years to see where his relationship with these irrealities began. In her book, The Vampire as a Numinous Experience, Beth MacDonald details Stoker's sickly childhood, he was often confined to his bed in his early years. As any mother would in this situation, Bram's ma'am would often regale her bedridden son with tales of Irish mysticism, from banshees to some good old-fashioned will-o'-the-wisps. It fits that Bram's childhood was occupied with long bedside tales by day and mythical dreams by night, just like Jonathan Harker. Which makes us ask, what of Bram Stoker's dreams, nightmares, and metaphysical experiences? What small lapses of reality led him to Count Dracula? 
Stoker himself had admitted on at least one occasion to being swept up in the draw of parapsychology when he fell under the spell of Henry Irving. 1876. It was a cold December in Dublin. Famous actor Henry Irving was to be the guest of honor at Trinity University, receiving awards from the school and then performing to a full house. Stoker had been a fan of Irving's for years and had even written reviews of his performances for the local paper. The two had met a few times and Irving knew Stoker by his positive reviews, so the two dined together while Irving was in town. Before dinner, Irving pulled Stoker and some friends aside and asked if he could perform a poem he was working on. That night, Henry Irving's private performance of The Dream of Eugene Aram was electric. Stoker himself described the event by saying, quote, That experience I shall never, can never forget. The recitation was different, both in kind and degree, from anything I had ever heard. So great was the magnetism of Irving's genius, so profound was the sense of his dominancy that I sat spellbound. But surprisingly, Stoker may have been underselling the experience. According to the Irving Society, Bram Stoker was so particularly affected that at the performance's conclusion, he exploded into violent hysterics. And as we'll learn later this season, this was just the beginning of the spell Henry Irving cast over Bram Stoker. A spell so profound that the face of Henry Irving, his imposing size, aquiline nose, domed forehead and massive eyebrows would become the face of Count Dracula himself. So, here's Bram Stoker, earlier a bedridden child riddled with mythos and dreams, later consorting with secret societies who commune with the dead, spellbound by an imposing figure, who writes of Jonathan Harker's inability to tell dreams from reality. Like they say, you write what you know. No fictional character has been adapted in media more than Count Dracula. But while we say that the Count is fictional, certainly he's based on the real historical figure Vlad the Impaler, right? Let's ask Nicole to shed some light on this creature of the night. It's autumn of 1969. Deep in the snowy Carpathian Mountains, Boston College researchers Radu Florescu and Raymond McNally make a grim discovery. Castle Dracula. As we learned earlier, it's not actually Count Dracula's castle, but it is a castle with connections to the very real Vlad III Dracula, also known as Vlad Tepish, Romanian for Vlad the Impaler. Today, we take for granted that the infamous Vlad the Impaler inspired the character Count Dracula. If you search Dracula on Google Images, one of the first things you'll see is a historical portrait of Vlad the Impaler. But in the 125 years since Dracula was released, this connection is a relatively modern one. Florescu and McNally weren't the first people to tie these two figures together, 
But when they published a book titled In Search of Dracula in 1972, their year's worth of research and adventures in Transylvania became pop culture canon. Florescu and McNally were colleagues at Boston College, where Florescu was a Romanian academic and McNally was a professor of Eastern European history. Florescu had fled Romania as a child during World War II. Born to a distinguished Romanian family, his father worked for the prime minister as a diplomat to the United Kingdom. When the Romanian government formed an alliance with the Nazis, the prime minister demanded his father return to Romania. In protest, his father quit his post. In the years after the war, Florescu grew up in Britain, but his academic career eventually took him to America. Still, he was always deeply involved in Romanian politics. He went on to write multiple books on Balkan political affairs and even occasionally advised the U.S. State Department. Just months before that chilly mountain climb towards Castle Dracula, Florescu served the U.S. President Richard Nixon as a press liaison to the new socialist government in Romania. But despite his political accomplishments, Dracula was, as Florescu claimed, always in his blood. As Florescu tells the story, his distant ancestor married Vlad the Impaler's brother, Radu the Handsome. Radu Florescu was apparently named in honor of this ancient relative. So when Florescu stood in front of that castle in autumn of 1969, he had a profound sense that the fictional Dracula's origins were buried right here in his homeland. In Search for Dracula's opening pages describes the scene. High up in the Transylvanian Alps, we came to a halt. There, atop a black volcanic rock formation bordering the Argus River and framed by a massive alpine snow-capped landscape, lay the twisted battlements of Castle Dracula. Its remains barely distinguishable from the rock of the mountain itself, a sheer thousand-foot drop on all sides. This was hardly the grandiose macabre mausoleum described by Bram Stoker. Yet no matter how modest, nor how tortured by the time, it was a historic edifice, one challenging the historian to solve its mystery, to push back an unconquered frontier. It's obvious why the book was a bestseller and went on to shape much of the cultural conversation around Transylvania, Dracula, and Vlad the Impaler in the decades since its release. The authors write vividly about their adventures through the mysterious land, combing old documents detailing castles and duchies, intertwining history and fiction in a way that felt prophetic. When In Search of Dracula was released, it changed Radu Florescu's life. He once told the New York Times, quote, I used to write books that nobody read. Now everyone knew his work. He and his colleague brought physical, historical life to the most famous literary character of all time. In Search of Dracula made its authors famous, placed a Wallachian ruler into the cultural zeitgeist, and created a classic horror trivia question. A quick search on the internet returns thousands of links titled, Was Dracula a Real Person? Florescu and McNally's thesis has become our historical truth about the origins of Count Dracula. Unfortunately, it's all bullshit. Vlad III Dracula was the voivode of Wallachia three times in his life. In the 1400s, Vlad the Impaler earned his intimidating nickname 
by impaling his enemies upon great wooden stakes during his infamously brutal military campaigns and raids. More elaborate tales claim he dined atop the corpses of his fallen enemies and boiled prisoners to death. Ruling during the advent of the printing press helped spread some of these tales, whether exaggerated or not, throughout all of Europe. But Vlad's historical life is a dense end of the Middle Ages story about alliances, betrayals, endless wars between Christian and Muslim rulers, and his struggles to retain his seat of power in Transylvania. Frankly, Vlad the Impaler's legacy reads like a season of Game of Thrones, and we're here for that HBO miniseries. But Vlad's legend, after the release of Florescu and McNally's book, ignited the imagination of many artists who would go on to adapt Bram Stoker's novel. In 2014, the movie Dracula Untold saw Luke Evans portray Vlad Tepish seeking out supernatural powers to defeat the Ottoman army. In the film, Vlad's actual historic victories are won with fangs and bats instead of swords. The 1992 film Bram Stoker's Dracula opens with a flashback where Gary Oldman, also portraying Vlad the Impaler, witnesses the death of his fictional wife, stabs a crucifix until it bleeds, and gets literally cursed with vampirism by God. And in 1975, just three years after In Search for Dracula was released, Florescu and McNally's book was loosely adapted into the horror documentary starring Christopher Lee as Vlad the Impaler, the same Christopher Lee who had recently played Dracula in nine Hammer horror films. But there's one famous artist who knew very little about Vlad the Impaler's history, Bram Stoker. In 1970, just two years before In Search of Dracula was released, the Rosenbach Museum in Philadelphia purchased a set of Bram Stoker's notes from a book dealer. The notes, it turns out, included a manuscript, photographs, paper clippings, and research for an early, never-before-seen outline of his novel, Dracula. In his early drafts, Dracula was called Count Wampier and was from the Austrian land of Styria, the same spooky location where the earlier vampire novella Carmilla was based. But as his notes show, sometime in 1890, Stoker discovered a book at the Whitby Public Library that would change those key details about the Count. Stoker got all he knew of the historical Vlad III Dracula from William Wilkinson's An Account of the Principalities of Wallachia and Moldavia. But this book only had two paragraphs discussing Dracula. In her 2012 book, Sense and Nonsense, acclaimed Dracula researcher and academic Elizabeth Miller outlined exactly what Stoker learned from those pages. One, that he was a voivode, or military leader. Two, that he crossed the Danube River and attacked some Turkish troops. Three, that he enjoyed brief success. Four, that he was driven back to Wallachia, was defeated and escaped into Hungary. Five, that his brother, Radu the Handsome, replaced him as a voivode. It did not include a detailed breakdown of Vlad III's life, his brutality on the battlefield, or any information about his love of impalements. As far as Stoker's notes suggest, he merely lifted the name Dracula from the book. Seemingly because, in contemporary Romanian... The ominous name meant devil. No other connections to Vlad III Dracula were found in the notes. Despite the revelations from Stoker's notes, some still cling to the belief that the Vlad III was Stoker's great inspiration for Count Dracula, a prototype or patron saint of all vampires to come. So for a moment, let's show the math 
and look at some of the wild inconsistencies between the two figures. In the novel, Count Dracula claims that he descends from the Huns and is a Sakili. Vlad Dracula, though, was Valachian, neither Hun nor Sakili. As Stoker wrote in his notes when he changed his protagonist's name, Dracula in Valachian language means devil. While true in the context of Stoker's time, in Vlad's lifetime, the title derived from his father's membership in the Order of the Dragon, a holy order created by Hungarian and Croatian King Sigismund, a group meant to defend Christians against Muslims, regardless of their national or ethnic claims. King Sigismund would go on to become a Holy Roman Emperor, and the Order of the Dragon rose to some prominence in the 1400s, with Vlad's father taking the name Dracul, meaning dragon. Vlad III would eventually join the Order as well, adopting the name Dracula, or Son of the Dragon. Early in the novel, Count Dracula says that he is a noble and a boyar. Please note that we are already in trouble here because the Sakili were never nobles. They were an isolated ethnic group on the edges of Transylvanian society. So Count Dracula claiming to be both Sakili and noble is problematic to begin with. Boyars were a type of nobility, usually court officials and heads of villages, treasurers, judges. Furthermore, Vlad Dracula was decidedly not a boyar. He was a voivode, which is a type of military commander-in-chief. It is importantly not a king or a form of nobility. Vlad III and his father, Vlad II, were voivodes because of their military prowess. They were not an aristocratic family. In fact, when Vlad Dracula achieved his power, one of his first acts was to slaughter all the nobles, the boyars, who had plotted against his father in the years earlier. You know, this is something I personally took to heart. Whenever I got a promotion, I also, as first order of business, have all of my previous supervisors impaled. It's just more professional that way. The impalement that Vlad III is also popular for is often considered the inspiration for the staking of vampires. But this also reeks of bullshit, because it is. The staking of vampires, an important part of the novel, was already an established trope long before Stoker published Dracula. We'll get into the origins of staking in future episodes, but for now, trust us, we have lots of pre-Dracula stakes to sharpen. Stoker definitely borrowed the concept of vampire staking, but it wasn't from Vlad the Impaler. As Elizabeth Miller concluded in her research, quote, let's get one thing clear. Vlad the Impaler was not, is not, and will never be Count Dracula. Bram Stoker's notes, which held many of the secrets of Count Dracula's origins, spent nearly 80 years in the shadows. So who found those notes tucked away in Philadelphia's Rosenbach Museum? Why, Radu Florescu and Raymond McNally. The same year they released In Search for Dracula, Florescu and McNally found the notes while looking for historical information on Vlad the Impaler. Despite the truth inside those notes, they let Vlad the Impaler's lore frame their otherwise detailed study of the novel. Three years after the book's release, Florescu and McNally publicly announced they had found and used the lost Stoker notes for their book, but those notes stayed out of the public's eye in the decades to follow. Florescu would go on to write a dozen books, including several bestsellers about Count Dracula and Vlad the Impaler. It wasn't until 1989 Dracula, Prince of Many Faces, that Florescu and McNally finally debunked their own myth, writing, quote, Dracula, the novel, 
was the product of the wild imagination of the author. The only thing the vampire shared with any historical prototype was the name. Florescu was right about one thing. Even all those decades after his autumn hike to Vlad the Impaler's castle, Reduce still had Dracula in his blood. On May 26, 1995, 98 years after the release of Bram Stoker's Dracula, Florescu attended a massive Dracula festival in Romania. It was a celebration for fans, scholars, and proud Romanians. Bookstores sold out of Romanian-language copies of Dracula. New research papers were exchanged by academics, and shots of Dracula's blood vodka were had during late-night cocktail parties. Florescu was a celebrity in his own right, donning a black cape to the after-parties. In the throes of celebration, a Washington Post reporter asked him about his recently debunked, but still enduring myth. Florescu had said simply, quote, I did not know Vlad Tempish was Dracula in the beginning, but then I did something mischievous. I exploited the vampire to promote Vlad and to promote Romanian history. In 2013, after meticulous work by Elizabeth Miller and co-author Robert 18 Bazang, Stoker's notes were fully transcribed, annotated, and released to the public finally putting a stake in Vlad the Impaler's grip over vampire literature. Though Stoker transformed his Count Vampire into the now infamous Count Dracula, even Florescu agrees it was a name alone. But as for the rest of Count Dracula's inspiration and mythology, that's thanks to all of us. As Bram Stoker once told a fan in letter correspondence, you know a lot more about Dracula than I do. As we blow out the candle on this episode, let's reflect on our journey thus far. We followed our unsuspecting solicitor, Jonathan Harker, journey to Transylvania and lose his grip on the waking world. We saw him imprisoned in a gothic, maze-like castle that holds many secrets. And we met the infamous Count Dracula and learned his wicked origins, both real and imagined. On our next episode, we'll be journeying across the sea to England, where we will meet Jonathan Harker's love, Mina Murray, in the quiet vacation town of Whitby. I can promise that Whitby will not be so quiet once we, and the Count, arrive. Novel Context is hosted by me, David Malone, and features Nicole Talbot, who can be found recapping HBO shows on the It's Not TV podcast, Gene Mango, whose latest music you can find on Spotify, Apple Music, and other streaming services, and Nancy King, who is too busy exploring a library to give us her socials. Our show is produced by Matt Malone, with production assistance from yours truly. To learn more about the extensive research that went into this episode, check out our show notes. And for even more Dracula, visit our Twitter at Novel Context. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Novel Context is a production of Bruit Media. Come freely, go safely, and leave something of the happiness you bring. <laughs>